This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. We continue to engage with God on this Easter Sunday. And if it's your first time here, I just want to give you an extra special welcome. Boy, I know what it's like walking into a new place for the first time, especially a church or a religious organization, all the questions we have about what's it going to be like. I want you to know we built this place for you, a place for you to come and ask questions and engage with your faith in a, in a safe place. And so I want to invite you, make yourself at home. Kick off your shoes if that would make you more comfortable. Grab some coffee and some tea from the lobby. Bring it in if you want to. Don't even worry about spilling on the floor. I tell people all the time, you're more important than a carpet square. So if you spill, it's no big deal. And if you don't believe me, look at the carpet squares. Okay, you'll see it. Because you matter. And I'm so glad that you are here with us today. You're going to want to grab a few things to get us all on the same page as we continue to experience God this morning. The first is this card that says, start here. Would you just go ahead and grab that and put your name on it? And if you're a guest with us, with your email address. And you don't have to do anything beyond that at this point. But if I've earned your trust over the next 35 minutes or so, uh, I'm going to ask you when some baskets are passed just to drop this into the basket. It's simply a connection card. Helps you have access to the pastoral team. Helps us connect with you in any way we can. So go ahead and get that ready. Uh, The other thing you're going to want to grab are the teaching notes because we are talking about my favorite story in the entire Bible today. So go ahead and grab those notes as we ask this big question. We just sang a song that said, he is alive. The question we're asking today, could that be true? I mean, could that actually be true that God is not dead, that God is actually alive? Because if that is true, and that gets past our heads as an intellectual exercise and actually gets to the core of who we are, that truth changes everything. And I know we're coming in from all different places on the answer to that question. But I would ask for the next half hour or so, would you just open your mind to the possibility that that could be true? And those teaching notes are going to give us the story we're going to look at this morning. So as you're getting that finished up, I want to, I wonder, and I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, but I promise I won't call on anybody so you don't have to be nervous. Um, how many of you like crime dramas? Is there anybody who likes a good crime, whether it's a TV show? Or, yeah, absolutely. I just recently got hooked. I'm a latecomer. But I got hooked on, um, I've been streaming on Netflix, Blue Bloods. Anybody like Blue Bloods out there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Whether you like Blue Bloods or not, we can all agree that Tom Selleck has an incredible mustache. Can't we? I mean, can we just be honest for a second? How many men, and I know every single one of us, there's not a man in here who's not 35 years or older who hasn't at some point in your life thought to yourself, I wonder if I could grow a mustache like Tom Selleck. I mean, that, it, it, like, it has its own time zone. That's how amazing that mustache is. And last year, I grew a beard for about three months, and I shaved it right before Easter. First service, my wife shouted amen when I said that, but we don't have to, admit, we don't have to take a vote on that, because it will come back, because I love the beard. But right before Easter, I thought to myself, I'm going to shave the beard, but I want to keep the mustache, because I would like to have a Tom Selleck mustache. And I wonder, I wonder what would it look like to have that kind of a mustache. And I realized that, that my mustache looks a lot less like Tom Selleck and a lot more like Freddie Mercury from Queen. Um, if you don't believe me, I think we've got a, a picture of the three of us up there. That is something. Yeah. That, yeah. We can, that's, we can go ahead and no one take a picture on your phone. We'll just keep our phones away for now. We can drop that. 
we can drop that off the screen. But yeah, that is terrifying. That is absolutely terrifying. Thank you for taking that off. I appreciate that. Yeah. But if you don't know Blue Bloods, here's the backstory, other than Tom Selleck's mustache, which I love. Here's the backstory on Blue Bloods. It's about this family of New York City police officers, uh, and one of them is a lawyer. And so what it does is it follows, uh, each, each episode follows from a crime to solving the crime, getting the perpetrator through the trial process. And it asks, and what I've realized as I'm watching Blue Bloods is that the witness holds a lot of power in the life of the accused criminal. Here's what I mean by that. If you get the right witness in that trial, it could save that person's life. If you get the wrong witness in that trial, it could send someone to prison for life. And that got me thinking, and I want to ask you this question. If you were on trial for your life, what type of a witness would you want? Go ahead and grab your notes. Just jot down a few. Not a person, but what type of witness? What would you want that person to be like? What are some characteristics in your ideal witness? And maybe you're sitting here thinking, I would never do something with which I would be on trial for my life. So let's do it this way. As you're writing down, if you had the dream job, the job of a lifetime that you were applying for, and you had to have the perfect reference, what kind of qualifications would that reference have? Go ahead and take a second. I would assume that you would want someone who knows you, and ideally someone who believes in you. We would probably all say we want someone who is well-known in the community, but, but not notoriously well-known in the community, well-known and well-respected in the community. And we'd probably want someone who had the ability to sway public opinion, because that witness or that reference holds a lot of power. Now, who would you absolutely not want to be your witness if you were on trial for your life or if you were going for the job of a lifetime? Well, you'd want someone who is generally looked at with doubt and suspicion. You would not want someone who is, holds no power in the community. You wouldn't want someone who is not respected or who had no pull on public opinion. Now, I want you to hold that in the back of your mind as we dive in today. And I know you can because you came to New Life, which means you're some of the smartest people in the world. So I trust you. Hold that in the back of your mind this morning as we dive in. Because it's Easter, and Easter is the perfect time for us to gather together. This is my favorite Sunday of the year, and it's the perfect time for you to be here. Whether it's your first time or your hundredth time, whether you're here because a cute girl invited you, or you got bribed with lunch. Maybe you're home from college right now and your parents said to you, if you don't come to church with me, you will not get your Easter basket. You know, I, I don't know what brought you here, but whatever brought you here, I'm telling you, this is the perfect time for you to be here because on Easter Sunday, we boil down Christianity to its essence, to its core. And the core of the Christian faith is not a church, any one church or the church. As much as I love church, it's not the church. And the core of the Christian faith is not the Bible. I believe in the Bible, you know, the B-I-B-L-E. Yeah, that's the book for me. I, I believe in the Bible. But that's not the core of the Christian faith. The core of the Christian faith is not the church you grew up in with all those wackos. The core of the Christian faith is not your friends growing up. The core of the Christian faith is not your crazy Uncle Rico who hid chocolate crosses instead of Easter eggs. That is not the core of the Christian faith. I'm sorry if your name is Rico. (laughs) The core of the Christian 
faith. What it boils, its essence, what it boils down to is an event that happened this weekend some 2,000 years ago. And we don't believe in this event because the Bible tells us to. We believe in this event because over 500 people witnessed it. And they told their stories. And their stories are recorded in the book of the Bible. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me, let me zoom out. Let's start back with the beginning of this event. It circles around a person named Jesus, a Jewish carpenter turned teacher, turned rabbi, religious leader, who claimed something very unique. He claimed to be God in the flesh. And Jesus went around and he, he taught like nobody else had ever taught. I mean, when he taught, people listened. He'd gather thousands of people with his teaching. And he healed people who were sick. And he did good for people. But that's not the core of Jesus' message. It wasn't about his teaching and it wasn't about his healing. They pointed to something even bigger. And here it is in Jesus' own words, leading up to this Easter weekend. Here's what Jesus said to his closest friends. And we find it in the book of Mark chapter 10. He said this, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, that's Jesus talking about himself. The son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Those were the Jewish religious leaders. They will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles, specifically the Romans, because Rome was the superpower of the time. And because Rome was the superpower of the time, Jewish courts had no authority to condemn someone to death. So he said, they will condemn me to death, but they can't actually carry it out. So they're going to turn me over to the Romans, to the Gentiles, which is anyone who wasn't Jewish, to the Roman powers. And the Romans, Jesus says, will mock me, spit on me, flog me, which is a torture that's it's almost too graphic to, to communicate. He says, and then they're going to kill me. And I want you to underline this next part. And then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And that is the center point of Jesus' teaching. And you might be sitting here and wondering, why, why? Why would he have to die? What's the point? Why would you kill someone who's a good teacher, who's doing good things for people, who's healing people who are sick? Why would anyone want to kill him? And Jesus said, here's the reason why I have to die. He said, because there's this thing called sin. And if you've been around, you know our working definition. Sin is simply our propensity to think things, to say things, to do things that hurt us. It hurts you when you sin. It hurts those closest to us, people we love. And ultimately, if there is a God who is perfect and holy, it separates us from God. And I don't have to convince you that you sinned because you've laid in bed at night and you've thought to yourself, I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I went there. I can't, I can't believe I looked at that or, or yelled at the kids again, got in that same fight. I can't believe I smoked it. I can't believe I drank it. And you promised yourself, I'm never going to do it again. And here's the crazy thing about sin. A week later or a month later or a year later, you were, you were looking at it, drinking it, smoking it, going there, screaming at the kids again, getting in that same fight, finding yourself caught up in that same addictive pattern. And you laid in bed and you kicked yourself and you thought, why do I keep doing this? And Jesus says, because the sin thing actually has control over our lives. And until it is done away with, we cannot break those patterns on our own. And here's the crazy thing about Jesus. Jesus said, I'm fully God. I made you. I know you. I love you. I even know what you're thinking right now. 
in the least creepy way possible. (laughs) He said, I know that you can't break the power of sin. So Jesus left heaven and came to earth, and he lived a perfect life. He said, and I'm going to give my life to pay the penalty for your sin. Because we're told that the penalty of that sin is death. And we know it's relational death. When you say enough or do enough, it ends relationships. We've all felt the heartbreak of the relational death of sin. But he says it's also spiritual death. That when we sin, it separates us from God. And unless that sin issue is dealt with, we will walk through this life separately from God and we will walk into eternity separate from God. And it's not because God doesn't want to have a relationship with us. It's because we've chosen to walk apart from him. And this is the thing that separates Christianity from all other world religions. Because other world religions have great teachers, excellent teachers. Other world religions have aspects of them that give great truth that bring um, an end to areas of suffering and pain. But no other major world religion has a God who would say, I would come to you. All other world religions say, you have to figure out a way to get to God. And Jesus said, there's no way for you to get there because of that sin problem. And so I'm going to come to you. And he says, I'm going to give my life to pay the penalty for your sin, that penalty which is separation and death, so that you can experience life. And here's the kicker. He said, three days later, I'm going to rise again. And when I rise again, I'm going to break the power of sin. I'm going to, I'm going to put sin on the ground. I'm going to break its back. I'm going to sin, take sin in the backyard. I'm going to grab my shovel. I'm going to cut its head off. That's what he's saying. I'm going to break the power of sin forever so that you don't have to be chained up by sin anymore. And it played out exactly like Jesus said it would. A handful of weeks later, On a Thursday night, think back to just a handful of days ago. On a Thursday night, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus had dinner with his closest friends. Then they went out to pray together and to worship, and his friends fell asleep because it was probably a delicious dinner with a lot of wine. So they fell asleep, and he woke them up, and they were talking, and all of a sudden he was betrayed by his closest friend. Taken to the Jewish leaders where they had a mock trial. They broke every Jewish law in the book in this trial. And they condemned him to death, but they couldn't kill him, so they turned him over to the Romans who ended up condemning him to death. And he was spit on, he was mocked, and he was was beaten to within an inch of his life. And he was nailed to a cross, and he was crucified. And then he was brought down hastily, and uh, a guy named Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, he he went to Pilate, the Roman uh, leader of the time, and said, can I have Jesus' body? I want to bury him in a tomb before the Sabbath day, which was a day of rest for the Jewish people. I want to bury him in a tomb for the Sabbath day. And I just heard a story. I was, I was reading about, I wrote this interaction between Pilate and Joseph of Arimathea. And Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and said, can I have Jesus' body to bury him in my family's tomb? And Pilate said to Joseph, that's a really nice tomb. It's your family's tomb. You, you could bury a lot of people there. Why would you pick him? He's a condemned murderer. Why would you put him in your tomb? Don't you feel like you're wasting it for your family for generations to come? And, and Joseph looked at Pilate and said, well, it's just for the weekend, so don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> Best Easter joke ever, ever. My mom called me last night after her church service and told me that joke. I laughed and laughed. That is so funny. That, it's only for the week. Oh my gosh, so funny, so funny. But you might not believe that's true. So we'll get back to the story. He was buried. 
And this huge stone, like this big round stone that weighed hundreds of pounds was rolled in front of the tomb. It was kind of in a little cradle, rolled in front of the tomb. And then a couple of Roman guards stood guard because they didn't want any grave robbers to come and steal it. But what they really didn't want was Jesus's followers to come because they knew that he had predicted he would rise again. They didn't want Jesus' followers to come and take the body and create a hoax that Jesus had actually risen when he hadn't. Here's the thing about Romans. They stood guard. If they fell asleep at the post, they could be executed for it. They were serious. I'm sure they had mustaches like Tom Selleck. I am sure of it. They were manly men. And they stood guard of Jesus' dead body in the tomb. And none of Jesus' followers expected him to rise again. Isn't that interesting? Even though he predicted it, none of them. It's not like they were standing outside of the tomb on that Sunday morning, counting down 10, 9, 8. No, they were, they were hiding. They were terrified. Why? Because other people had claimed to be the Jewish Savior and had been crucified by Rome. And then their followers were killed as well. And they thought, we're surely dead. Well, here's how the story picks up, and this is where it gets really good. And we're going to look at the rest of the story from two different accounts of Jesus' life. One from um, from the book of Matthew, the other one from the book of Luke. And here's how the story picks up. It says, after the Sabbath, that would have been that Saturday. So now it's Sunday morning, the same Sunday morning that we're in right now. At dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to the tomb. And they were actually going just to kind of anoint his body for the burial process. Verse 2 says, There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. And going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. His clothes were white as snow. And the guards, these tough Roman guards, were so afraid, they shook and they became like dead men. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And, And the angel said to the women, I want you to underline this, Do not be afraid. We're going to come back to that at the end. Do not be afraid. Because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just like he said he would. Come and see. And they, the angel brings him into the tomb. Come and see the place where he was laid. Now go quickly to the disciples. Tell them that Jesus has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. And there you will see him. Now I've told you this. Verse 8 says, So the women hurried away from the tomb. They were afraid, and yet they were filled with joy as they ran to the disciples. And they were afraid because this doesn't happen. And yet, in their, in, their, in their minds, they realized he's not here. Something must have happened, but it has not translated the eight inches down to the core of who they were. And I'm telling you, we can believe something here, but until it gets to our core, it does not transform our lives. And so they were afraid, and yet they had some hope, some joy as they ran. Verse 9 says, suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. And they came to him, they fell down at his feet, and they clasped his feet, and they worshiped him. And he said the same thing, and I want you to underline it again. He said, do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers. Those are the, uh, the 11. Tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And I want to make a note that's going to become extremely crucial to the question we're asking. Could this have really happened? So just take a note this. The first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection were women. Now, (laughs) all right. Hold on to that. Hold on to that as we keep looking at the story because this is going to become really important in about two minutes. When they had come back 
from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and all the other people. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and others who told this to the apostles. Verse 11 says this, but they did not believe the women because, underline this next part, their words seemed like nonsense to them. Now, why? You got to ask, why wouldn't they believe the women? Jesus had said, I'm going to die and rise again. They were there. They, They heard him say it. Why wouldn't they believe the women? Well, to understand the answer to that question, we have to understand the ancient world that, you, that Jesus lived in. It was a world where women were at best second-class citizens. It was a world where women had no rights. They were little more than property of their husbands. Now, Jesus elevated women. He taught women. He, he engaged with women. He empowered women. But in the broader Roman world where Jesus lived and in the Jewish world, women were looked down on in a very extreme way. In fact, Jewish men had three set prayers they prayed each day. And in one of those prayers, there's one of the lines they said every day was this, thank you, God, that you did not make me a woman. But here's the kicker, though. Women's testimonies in Jesus' day were inadmissible in court. You and I could be standing right here and you could see a crime happen. You could say, I saw it. I was five feet away. You could not testify in court. Your witness was inadmissible. And I asked us in the beginning of our time together, who would you want to have as a witness or a character reference for you? We said, well, someone who's well-known, someone who's well-respected, someone who has the ability to sway public opinion. So here's the million-dollar question that we must ask ourselves today. Who would you absolutely not want to have as your first witness if you were Jesus and you'd just risen from the dead? You wouldn't want to have a woman. You can say it unless you're next to your wife, in which case. (laughs) Even Jesus' followers did not believe the women, and they had heard him say he was going to rise from the dead. And here's the thing. The fact that the Bible points out that women were the first ones to see Jesus alive again, it points to the authenticity of Jesus' resurrection. If you were an early follower of Jesus and you thought to yourself, Jesus is dead, but he said he was going to raise again and he hasn't risen again. We need to go and we need to take his body. And you somehow were able to knock out the Roman guards without them realizing that you were doing it. And you were able to take his body. The next thing you would do is this. You'd say, well, how are we going to create a hoax? How can we get people to believe us that Jesus has risen from the dead? We need to find a witness. It has to be a man. He has to have good standing. He has to be able to sway public opinion. You would absolutely never in a million years, if you were making this up, say, let's grab a couple women who no one believes in, who cannot testify, and let's make them our key witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. It would not happen. So we have to ask ourselves, why does the Bible say that women were the first ones to see Jesus alive? Now, I, I played soccer in high school down in Southern California, and I can say this with all authenticity. I was a mediocre player on a mediocre team. I really was. My identity is firmed up enough now as a 35-year-old man that I can say that. And here's how I know I was not very good. I was a midfielder, left midfield to be specific, so you can picture it in your mind. I was a left midfielder. 
And in three years of playing soccer, two years varsity, three years of playing soccer, I only scored one goal. Now, you should score more goals than that in three years of soccer as a midfielder. I did not. But my one goal came at the perfect time. All of my family was there watching. My grandfather was visiting from Oregon. It was the one game that he saw me play in high school. And I thought, if there's ever a day to score a goal, this is it. And it, it, it came down towards the second half of the game, towards the end. And it came down to it. I was running down the field on my left-hand side. And on the other side, one of our players had the ball. And he crossed it to me. And I'm not joking. It was like, here's the goal. Here's me. There is no one between me and the goal. If he can just get me the ball... There's no way I could miss. I literally cannot go over the goal from here. And sure enough, he crosses the ball to me. And I've got visions of like, of Messi, just like diving header into the goal. And the ball's coming to me and I'm, I'm getting ready. I'm getting ready. And everybody's there. And I think this is great. And all of a sudden, maybe when it's three feet away from me, something happens. The ball just dies. And it, instead of coming towards my head as I'm getting ready for it, it comes down and it hits me in the tummy and it just bounces into the goal. You know, it's like, it was, hor- it was horrible. It was the worst. Like, I, come on, got diving header, I'm ready. Nope, hit me in the tummy. Literally dribbled into the goal. The referee looks at me like, I, I guess. Now listen, friends, that is not the way I would like to remember my glory days at Glendora High School. That is not the way I want to remember it. But you know what? That's the way it really happened. So as bad as that is for my PR, if I'm going to tell you that story with honesty, that has to be in there. In the same way, if the Jewish leaders were going to try to to manufacture a story, they would never have put women here. But you know what? Why would they? Why would they say women were the first ones? The only reason is because that's the way it actually happened. And that points to the authenticity of the Bible. And they knew they'd get flack. In fact, the first book that was ever written against Christianity in the ancient world, here was the main thesis, the main argument of that book. We should discount every part of Christianity for one reason. They have women as their key witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. That was the premise to the entire critique of the first book ever written against Christianity. Why? Because it's horrible PR in Jesus' time to have women as your witnesses. And yet, the Bible says women were the first ones to see him. Why? Because they were the first ones to see him. Because he actually rose again. So the question becomes, what are we going to do with this information? He rose again. It was witnessed by these women went on to be witnessed by over 500 people who saw him alive and told their stories and wrote it down. The evidence is overwhelming. The question is not, did it actually happen? Do I have a reason to believe it? You and I have a reason to believe it. The question is, what are we going to do with it? And I would say there are three things we could do with it. The first is, we we could ignore this information. We could chalk it up to interesting intellectual thought, We could chalk today up to kind of an entertaining, engaging church service with great worship. And we could go home and we could open our Easter baskets and we could eat our Easter dinner, which for me is going to be a Mexican feast. So excited. Because I believe that's what they're going to serve in heaven. 
And, and we could come back again next year. Quite honestly. Can I tell you, though, this being an interesting little bit of information will never transform your life. And if Jesus really rose from the dead, and that goes from here to here, to the core of who we are, that's where transformation happens. Now, if you choose to ignore it and chalk this up to an interesting little bit of information, I want to tell you, when you're ready to take a next step, new life is going to be here for you. We love you. We are so excited for whenever you're ready to engage with God. We want to be the church that partners with you in that. But I'm telling you, just knowing the facts won't actually change your life. So I would invite everyone not to ignore it, but to explore it. Here's what exploring it looks like. Keep coming back. Explore the claims of Jesus. Check him out. Next week, we're starting a brand new series called The Good Life, and it's, it's coming from Jesus' most famous and longing ser- longest sermon he ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount, and it's going to be so good. I promise it won't be the longest sermons I've ever preached. It was the longest sermon Jesus ever preached, and it's all about how life works, and it's counterintuitive, and it's brilliant, and it's engaging, and if you want to know who Jesus is, the series we're going to start for the next couple months is the perfect place for you to explore the claims of Jesus about how life works. Jesus talks about living in a uniquely whole way, authentically you, experiencing authentic, whole, healed, true life. And he talks about it all through this sermon, and we're going to break it up and dive into it for the next number of weeks. Come back. Just come back. Check out the claims of Jesus. So you could ignore it. I hope you don't. But if you do, we'll be here when you're ready to come back. You could explore it. And that just means you just keep on coming. Or you could, and this is what I'm praying for, that you would embrace it. Embrace this reality. Not here, but it's your core. These women embraced the fact that Jesus had died and was now alive. And here's what they must have thought. If Jesus can die, die, dead, no more, and raise again. And if he would do that for me, then he could do anything, and he would. And they must have thought, well, if I don't even have to fear death, what do I have to fear? If not even death can hold God, but God is alive, and he broke the back of sin when he rose from the dead, if not even death can hold him down, what do I have to fear? And a number of us are coming in here today, and we've got all kinds of hurts and habits and hang-ups and pain and questions. Some of us are coming in today, and we're thinking, could my marriage ever be saved? Could I ever break that addiction? Some of us are thinking, I'm drowning in debt. How do I break free from that? Others of us are thinking, I wonder, I've been told my entire life, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not pretty enough. Could I actually be enough? Could I actually be enough? And Jesus, Jesus says that embracing it looks like believing that if he can raise from the dead, he can do anything. He can bring healing to your deepest hurts. He can save the most broken relationship. He can help you experience freedom. If, if Jesus rose from the dead and broke the power of death, broke the chains of death, he can break the chains of anything that binds you. Believing, it says, I believe that in partnership with God, all things are possible. Because look it, he even rose from the dead. 
So we don't have to fear death, but the truth is we don't have to fear our lives anymore either because our lives are not hopeless. There is hope for every situation, every relationship, every single one of us if we embrace the life that Jesus is inviting us to. How do we start that journey? Well, we start it by saying to God, God, I want to have a relationship with you. Remember I said that just knowing the right information doesn't actually transform our lives. It's good to know the right information. But transformation comes when that information comes down six to eight inches to our heart, to the core of who we are. And we say to God, God, enough keeping you at a distance. I want to experience your forgiveness that you offered to me when you gave your life on the cross. I want to experience your freedom that you purchased for me when you, when you rose from the dead. I want life with you. And you do it by just entering into that relationship, by praying and saying, God, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. You've already paid the penalty for my sin. Forgive me of my sin. Fill me with your spirit and teach me how to walk with you. And when you do that, God responds 100% of the time. And you can start that journey with him. And I want to give you a chance. I've been praying and praying this week that many of us would hear this today. And whether you've, you've been coming for weeks, months, years, maybe you come sporadically, but today would be the day that it all changes. That you say, you know what? There's something to this resurrection. It's the center point of our faith because the power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that he gives to us to transform our lives. And if you're ready to make that decision, I'm going to pray right now and give you a chance to pray with me to accept God's forgiveness and his grace and to start a relationship with him. So would you join me? Let's close our eyes and pray. And if you're ready, ready to say yes to Jesus, ready to enter into a personal relationship with him, to partner with him in this life, you can pray these simple words. You can whisper it where you're sitting. You can pray it even in your mind, and God hears and will respond. Just say these simple words. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me. And I believe that you gave your life to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to have a relationship with you. So would you come into my life? Would you forgive me of my sin? God, would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you show me what it looks like to walk every day of life with you? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.